How would you like to improve your relationship? How would you like to respond differently in a way that facilitates mutuality and encourages connection? We look forward to addressing these issues together and welcome you to Ask Arlo, a program that seeks to help you identify negative patterns and respond in new ways that can promote a more positive relationship. Now, here is the host of Ask Arlo, Arlene Majorano. Hi, my name is Arlene Majorano, and um, I'm happy to join you today with my host, Robin Hanberg. And uh, Robin will descri- describe, give, give, give you a little bit of information about herself. But um, our podcast today is going to be on uh, the impact of addiction, whether it be alcohol, drugs, or any other addiction, on a couple on a, and on a family. Uh, so here we go, but Robin, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Hi, I'm Robin Hanberg, and thank you so much for having me, Arlene. Um, I specialize in addiction, um, chemical addiction, as well as behavior, or now they're calling it activity addictions. Um, that's the newest one. Before this was process addictions. Uh, and so those are behaviors and activities that are compulsive and out of control. Um, and so I specialize in these, in, in chemical dependency and in behavior addictions. Um, I'm in private practice. And now I'm just doing Zoom, but uh, it's just, it's so nice to, to be here. Okay. And would you even add food addiction to that? Or would, would that be under the umbrella of a behavior addiction? Or Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a process addiction. So I work a lot with food disorders. So we're talking about anything that feels to the person like they can't control it and it becomes uh, automatic and, and pressure. There's a pressure to, I guess, comply with the uh, need to soothe yourself with the addiction right i mean so it could be could be that's a good way of saying it a pressure there's a real pressure there's a real burden it's like it's like an elephant on your chest Mm -hmm. when you're in the addictive process it's it's preoccupying it's all consuming um so what okay no i was just gonna say you know and you're dealing with physical cravings too uh and and intrusions you know obsessions of the mind and you you grow further and further away from connection from people from yourself from any kind of spirituality you might have had so it's very very painful to be in addiction right Yes, a lot of pressure. You know, I often think one of the things that feels the most painful to me is that the person who has become addicted, their their brain chemistry has been altered so much that they don't have control over the person that they used to be. So this, this new person isn't really them anymore. It's the part of them that's been kind of hijacked, right, by, yeah. the, by the chemistry, the brain chemistry has been created by the addiction and uh, yeah yeah and even i mean sex addiction has a brain chemistry and it's intoxicating just just through fantasy you know you can anticipate highs right when, right and uh i'll go back to food when you're um you know look walking into into the the supermarket you can anticipate the binge that you're going to get the entomans the chips or whatever you're into <laughs> you can anticipate that and almost get high off of it you and know why you know why i'm laughing i had this why? did i ever tell you i had this funny thing happen with my grandkids because we did we went into the supermarket and they were like they, they were pointing at all the food that was on the counter let me have this let me have and i and i said to them you know all those foods are there um, so that to, to force you to like induce you to the capitalists are tricking you so that they can so they can force you and induce you to buy all that food that you don't even want until you see it and it's there begging you to pick it. 
And so whatever, we we went out of this. And the next time that I went to the supermarket with my little grandson, he said to me, Grandma, I just want you to know that I am not going to let the capitalists trick me. So I am not going to ask you for candy. <laughs> she learned. She heard you. Yeah, yeah. It was really funny. I am not going to let the capitalists trick me. But yeah, but it's so com- it's so compelling and uh, and crazy. Yeah, yeah. And just about the brain, the, you know, the imaging that's gone on. I mean, first of all, it, it depends what lens you're looking at addiction. But if you're looking through the lens of um, of uh, the medical model, of the abstinence model, of um, why aren't I thinking the word? The disease model. They're saying, you know, you have a brain that's different. Yes, it's different after you use, but it's different even before you use. Hmm. You know, you got wires that are tangled up in there. Too much dopamine, not enough dopamine, whatever it is. I mean, there are scans that see the difference between a brain that's addicted and a, and, a, and a brain that's not, there's a difference. And you're even and before, even before. So you're talking about before. the propensity to choose a substance to deal with your emotional uh, uh, stress. That even that is genetic and maybe handed down from generation and also learned in a, in a family right. setting. Yeah. I didn't realize that actually, that there is a, a propensity yeah, there is. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then the um, the effect on the person, but also on the couple and the family is uh, is just completely destabilizing, right? And and um, and I'm I'm always interested because you know I work with a lot of couples, and um, sometimes people ha- like when we work in a couple, often the, our job is to see the person, see their side understand, not judge, not criticize. And I mean, to a certain extent, that's still true, but, and you try to find the common ground and, uh, but with addiction, the person, the, uh, this, the partner often has to say, no, you can't do this anymore. Um, they have to be the person like rather than have, you can have empathy for why the person may be vulnerable and, um, prone and, acting out of addiction, you can be empathic, but sometimes you have to take a stand and say, we can't be, we can't have this in our marriage. We, we can't have this in our relationship. Um, right. 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 Somebody has to take a stand. Sometimes though, uh, the spouse, like you said, it's, sometimes they're addicted to the addict. So, to police the addict isn't always encouraged. They have to get their own life back. They have to start focusing on themselves. You know, there's a, they've, they've neglected who they are. Can you imagine you have to make sure he calls the therapist, he goes to the therapist, he's showing up for work or, or he went to the kid's game or, or she, uh, you know, didn't leave the, the gas on or, this one's fighting, you know, in the parking lot with somebody like there's just to be so vigilant of another person mm-hmm, mm-hmm. takes you out of yourself. Right. And so the recovery usually of the codependent, the caretaker has to recover also. Right. Right. It's interesting. Cause you're, you, they're probably not probably, but possibly repeating uh, their role in a family of origin where they were the caretaker and they and the self-esteem and the um, value that they experienced for themselves came from being able to, right, take care of. Um, yes. Yeah. Like Yes. They're just like enacting. I mean, so that's why I wanted to share with you the... Um, this expert in, in the addiction and codependency field, she, Sharon Wegscheide-Cruz, she identified six different roles that family members, you know, tend to, tend to have when living with an alcoholic, but you can have these roles in any family. Right. Um, and again, and it's not one size fits all. 
but it's a, it's a good rough draft that I think you can play one role, you can play many roles, you can play one role one year and another role an- another year. But um, should I should I do you sure? Wanna... No, no, no. You can you can do it since you're familiar with this, and I'll just like you know ask you any questions that I have as they come up or add any comments. Okay. Well, we'll start with the attic. This is the person who has again an elephant on on its chest I mean all it needs is its next hit I live in this world as if I need I'm seeking I'm lacking um I'm in an affair with another person I mean it's just again that anxious attachment when is the dealer going to call when is he going to come so that's the addict that's the role they're Mm -hmm. self-centered they're Mm self-absorbed The enabler, oh, I'm sorry, did you want to say? Well, just when when you say self-centered and self-absorbed, I just want to clarify, not from a narcissistic uh, character style, but really from a chemical uh, desperation and necessity, right? That's what you mean by that. Well, could be both, but yes. Could could be both, but. In that sense, yeah, I mean, you're dealing with cravings and like an ache. You want to, you're uncomfortable, you're itchy, you want to scratch. So that's where the addict's at. Okay, I'm just gonna, I have something. Okay. Something's popping up on my screen. I just have to get rid of this. Uh, okay, there we go. The, the enabler, which we talked about, could be a spouse or a child. Um, they're, they're denying, they're minimizing, they're making excuses. That's their role. You know, that you're not good at managing the finances. I'll take over the finances. <clears throat> so that's the enabler. Um, the hero is the family hero. This is type A. This is hardworking. This is overachieving. Um, lots of, talk about pressure. The hero has a lot of pressure. The hero has to make the family look good, look as though they don't have a major, you know, problem going on. And lots of anxiety. I had a patient who was a hero and he went to a 12-step program and he was a hero in the 12-step program. He was a hero with me. He used to carry my water in. He committed suicide. Oh, no. Wow. Because he could not ask for help. He could not be vulnerable. He was a, he was the hero. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just, it's very hard for heroes to ask for help and to wow. need another, to rely, to depend on someone else. They're not you know, supposed to do that. And as we're talking, I, I'm thinking that, um, you know, we all have character traits and the character traits emerge in us. And if we, if we grow up in a family that's uh, relatively supportive and healthy and, and, and safe, um, those traits, we use those traits on our own behalf. So I was just thinking as you're, you know, you're saying the hero um, seeks out perfection and, 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 you know, uh, achievement, but there could be somebody who's, let's just say who's doing that for themselves a child who's good at something, who wants to be the best kid on the baseball team, or not even the best, who just wants to like enjoy fully science or math or do well in school. The teachers love that kid and the kid loves their teachers loving them. And it's just for them. They do it just for them. And, and even the, um, well, I'm not sure, you know, the enabler is probably a person who has like a, a lot of empathy and you call, you know, it, it's yeah. rather than enabling that person might um, be kind to someone or uh, loving or caretaking. And it, it, it yeah. would, the same traits would be activated, but they wouldn't have the function of keeping a dysfunctional family together. They would have the function of um, allowing the best part of a person to emerge. So it's kind of sad when when I'm looking at these, I'm seeing how. There are, you know, there are kids who have these traits who just are thriving because those traits are wonderful traits. That's right. And and they're not being hijacked. The traits aren't being hijacked in the service of taking care of or um, 
keeping mm -hmm. a dysfunctional family together. Mm -hmm. And of course, once they're hijacked, they get reenacted re in a next in a, an adult relationship, and um, and they're they're all that the person they're, they're all that the person knows is valuable about themselves. So they have to continue, and that's very sad about your client too. Yeah, yeah. it was incredible because it was. Uh... He had been in a 12-step program and sponsored many people and had a hard time being a sponsee. A sponsor is someone who has, we'll talk about, I know, the 12-step program later, but um, he advised and guided many, many people and didn't put himself in a situation to be a child. Right. Something's really very cool. dangerous about being a child and needing to learn and grow. Well, and taking, right? Taking and taking being vulnerable and, and, and uh, taking support as, and as opposed to only giving it. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Sad. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so the next role, uh, what I said, the, the enabler, the hero, the scapegoat, and then there's the mascot. The mascot. I don't, I don't think we talked about the scapegoat, did we? No, oh, no, we didn't. You're right. No. Thank you. Uh -huh. Well, this, the scapegoat's like the voice of everyone's pain and resentment. That's the scapegoat. I mean, usually there's a there's a there's a problem that's bringing you know uh, attention to the scapegoat, but it's really speaking to the overall problem and the way this family is being regulated or not. And it, it, it wants help. They say of, of all the people, there's studies that say the scapegoat is very likely to grow up and be an addict. If he's not using drugs, something, the scapegoat continues to live as a scapegoat. That's kind of like the role they play. You see that, you know, at work or, you know, they're. Do they, do they have any uh, research on why one child gets targeted like that? Like, why would that one child be blamed or targeted? Is it just like maybe a child that has some. I, I would think it's, it has to do mm -hmm. with being stuck, like developmentally. Because also they say the lost child. Let me go after the scapegoat. Okay. There's the mascot. Okay. And the mascot. You said you were a mascot. You deflect. <laughs> you know, with humor and 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 you're desperate to bring people together. Right. Right. Would you say that that? that well, thing? you know, it's it's funny because I'd say my father had that trait also. So the way he he would deal with my mother, it would be always to make some humor or 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 you know, kind of make a joke out of the dysfunctional things she was. And we weren't, a, we didn't have a physical addiction in our family, but we had a lot of violence. So um, he would somehow wow. manage to make a joke out of her. I don't know how he did it or make a joke out of other things. So I, I kind of, and, you know, he had his own childhood where he was um, uh, targeted. And, and so I, I guess that's how he learned to cope. So he was so good at it that I think I modeled myself after him. I admired him. He, he was good mm -hmm. at it. Plus he was very gentle and kind. And um, so, yeah. So I think I adopted that style from him. Uh -huh. It's a likable style. And I think that the mascot, though, there's a lot of immaturity. I don't think that they grow. That's what I meant developmentally. Like they're, they're stunted. Okay, I mean, I guess I'm. I know I'm being pathological in some ways, but there's I, I can go the other way as well. But I just this is these roles. Are, people like to to hear what they are. They like to pick out what they are. And I guess not it everybody. On how, but a lot of people do. Depends on how you use it and how whether you know. Because I don't particularly feel stunted, but you know, I feel sometimes. Uh, I might think I'm fabulous and funny and nobody else thinks so. <laughs> well, you know who I, I have in mind? Someone like Robin Williams. I mean, I remember he would be up on stage with other people and they would be talking adult talk and he would come in and he would use his shtick, his humor, his... And that to me was, was young. 
So maybe young is a better word than stunted, but it was like he belonged at the kids' table. You know, he was disruptive. He, he was being the mascot, and I mean, there's. So how, that, that's, how would you say that emerges in an adult relationship? Because that's what I'm, I'm wondering. I guess it's a person who might deflect from something that's going on that's painful, like in a say in a couple, rather than deal with it. Um, and they they might deflect or make a joke or yeah. um, get their partner angry because they're not taking them seriously. I'm thinking that's how it might emerge, right? Yeah, I can see that. That happens. Um, the the last role that. Uh, is played and again it can be you could play more than one role is the lost child doesn't seek attention kind of withdrawn goes in in their room sometimes it's the youngest child and I think again the lost child might be prone to addiction um it's interesting because when I think about some of the personality styles, like when you think of the avoidance style, um, it fits this, but there's more of a, like a positive spin on it. So the young child, and I, again, I don't know, but the, the lost child goes into their room, <laughs> they're shy, they're withdrawn, and hypothetically, they, they don't seek attention from the other family members. Why would they if the family is dysfunctional? Like that's a good choice <laughs> and, uh, or a wise choice. And then they may, hypothetically, the positive part of that is they could find ways to entertain themselves. They could, mm -hmm. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I guess it could be video games, not so good, but also it just could be studying. It could be um, focusing yeah. on something that they are particularly good at, drawing, um, like developing a, a, a part of themselves and that they have some control over. And, um, and avoiding intimate relationships because what they've learned is that those relationships are trouble or disappointing or, you know, dangerous. So yeah. you know, it could be, it could be, a, again, with each of these, I think there's a positive part to the, to the trait. It's, it could be depending upon how it goes. There's definitely a positive part. But you were just saying something about um, not being able to rely on on somebody. So, you know, of course, be in your room. And what what happens though? Yes, you can be studious and and get lost in books and have a great vocabulary and want to become a writer. But what starts to happen and what affects intimacy later, you know, down the road is that you know there's a saying. Choose people, not hits. The lost child is choosing hits. I don't. And what is a hit? Not pick a hit. A hit of uh, you know watching porn or oh, or eating Doritos or smoking crack or you know that they're go they're going to what's safe. Talk about secure attachment. Their secure attachment lies with their substance of choice. Mm -hmm. There's the secure attachment. Okay. That's there for them. A person isn't so secure. They don't know. Right. It's a gamble. Very unpredictable. They've grown up in chaos. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is usually, again, more studies say that addicts have grown up with parenting styles that are disorganized. Right. Of course. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not sure. Oh, there's the Alexa. Somehow she said she responded uh -oh. to the organized. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when there's that much unpredictability, um, you 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 go in and you you learn to take care of yourself and right. to soothe yourself. But again, that person, like maybe there's a scale of one to ten. So you know, it could be an extreme scale where it does lead to total isolation and addiction. But that person could also, hypothetically, anyway, I'm thinking. Um, be in a relationship with somebody who is maybe more anxious because and who who can tolerate or who finds the avoidance or the you know the the um, 
independence of that person um, to be comforting. So there's like a way, again, depending upon the scale of it, there's a way that that person could potentially link up with somebody in a relationship. Right, but I'm going to push back because I feel like I'm pathologizing, but I'm also coming as someone who's talking about addiction, you know, and 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 that's a very painful condition, illness, right, to have. So um, I'm not really looking at the bright side, which I, <laughs> <laughs> I I'm a real, but I I just wanted to say that you're talking about avoidance or but not in this is autonomy there's autonomy and then there's distance because I'm afraid you're going to impinge on me because I'm not usually around people and I don't have the coping skills to be a we or an us or a you know that that's different than autonomy that's avoidance right well okay we're we're, again because we, we, I mean, we can sort of, I hear what you're saying. And I also think that creatively, depending upon how extreme it is, there may be a way to um, connect with distance, with safety. With, uh, of course. I mean, that's what we do. That's the therapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the healing. Yeah, I, of, of, but this is, this is, the, this is the challenge that we're dealing with, you know, I mean, if you know what the difference is between autonomy and, and avoidance, that's very important. And we have to, you know, help them experience that difference in them. Right. Right. To find the part in them. In them. Yeah. It's their experience of when they're backing up. You can lie to yourself all you want and say you're, you're independent, but you know, we call this sexual anorexia, um, you know, I, I had this incredible experience of working in an outpatient program, just doing groups like two a day, relapse prevention. And this opportunity just fell on my lap to run a uh, gay men's sex addiction group. And then it was with me for, you know, seven, eight years. Wow. So I've learned so much. And there's sexual compulsivity. But there's also anorexia where you have to build a sexual recovery plan that includes maybe holding hands, maybe a, a kiss. You know, you have someone who's a who's interested in escorts or who's very active, but with their partner, with their loved one in the relationship they're in, there's a lot of anorexia, we call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the therapy. Right. So you're talking about building in the safety of small connections leading to a larger sexual connection, but just the safety of trusting that somebody who you really love, you could also be sexual with. Is that what you... Yeah. I mean, that's slowly. Slowly. Very small steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and just even... You know, there's an anorexia that you can have with yourself, like an underbeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, it actually makes sense that you can yeah. separate separate the emotional connection from the physical connection and allow yourself to have the physical arousal right. and connection, but keep yourself safe from being vulnerable in the emotional connection. Right? Mm-hmm. So to, to link those two up is, is the task. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, just to, to summarize all of what we're saying, though, the um, the thing we have to appreciate, both, at, you know, as therapists, but also as members of a couple where this is an issue, is just what people had to do to survive, you know, and even though the behavior may not be um, effective or, or um, desirable anymore, it was what they had to do to survive. So to both hold it and um, have empathy for it and understand it doesn't mean you have to like it, but um, you do have to understand the creative adjustment where it came from and honor that really. And, and you're likely to need help doing that. Mm -hmm. And I know you do a lot of couples work. I do some couples, but 
I, you know, I'm going to do a, a shout out to, uh, I want 12 step programs to be more user friendly. That's why I did the workshop last month, because uh-huh. as an adjunct to psychotherapy group, I'm a group person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like community and a sense of belonging. And to sure. if you can take in that, that felt sense of really belonging that goes, that speaks to that youngness that I belong to a family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also okay. must, um, it must protect against shame because if you're an individual therapy, you have this like idealized yeah. person who you can speak to, but that person doesn't uh, share or you don't, you don't project that they have the same vulnerabilities that you have. Usually people project that that person is, um, you know, like managing themselves and safe enough to trust because they're stable. So I guess in a group, what you get to see, I'm sure in a group, you get to see other people who have similar vulnerabilities and similar difficulties. And then the the shame you might experience is diluted because you see that this is a human, a human condition (laughs) to, to share like yeah. the creative adjustments that we needed to survive in our childhood. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so besides just, you know, that sense of belonging, it's also, uh, you know, there's 45 12 step programs. I might've been, ooh, ooh, ooh. I mean, it's like a hobby at this point. I am so interested in how they work. I mean, all the steps, it's all uniform, the 12 steps, no matter what program you're wow. in. Wow. When you say 45, but, can I just yeah. ask you? Do you mean 45 different like alcohol, like drugs, sex, 45 different conditions? Well, there's, it's broken down into three. Like there's a, there's 12 step programs that are for chemical dependency, like nicotine anonymous, marijuana anonymous, cocaine anonymous. There's those programs. And then there's under earners anonymous and sex addicts, sex and love addicts. And and those are the behavior programs. And a lot of those programs, in addition to the 12 steps, there's lots of literature. There's, uh, it's challenging because you have to create your own sobriety, your own recovery plan. Wow. So it's you said not, three, though. You said three categories. And then the, yes. And then the What's other, or yes, the other, the third is for the family. That includes chapter Oh, nine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is for couples. Know. Right, right, right. Al-Anon, wow. which is for a spouse or anyone who um, you know is struggling with with someone who who has a problem, and then there's ACOA, and these are adult children of alcoholics. These are the people who we're talking about who play those roles. Right, right. And wow. Yeah, I had no idea that. What was that number again? Forty-two. Yeah, Forty-two. But I mean, don't get me wrong. It's I refer to people who aren't just you know looking to stop using, for example, alcohol, I use, there's another program called smart recovery. Mm-hmm. And um, that's based on like an Albert Ellis. Remember Albert Ellis? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Of course. Rational emotive therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very CBT and they have a workbook and you don't have to stop. It's not abstinence based. It's right, more right. reduction. You set the boundaries. You say I'm going to see uh, this person uh, twice a week. Uh, you know, there's something that's called top line and bottom line behaviors. And most of the addiction, the process addictions work from this place. Top line is what you're going to do to stay sober, what you want to do, what you're going to add. Uh, patient told me this, the first thing you want to do when you get up in the morning, if you want to stay sober, make your bed, just sets the tone. So this person, their top line behavior is going to make their bed. Um, they're going to go to the gym. They're going to go to therapy. They're going to make two calls a day. What? Mm-hmm. And top line, uh, bottom line, excuse me, is what you're not going to do. I I'm not going to listen to, if it's a relationship, a breakup, someone who has not been available to you and you've been chasing and chasing. Um, Interesting. 
you're going to say, I'm not going to go on his Facebook or I'm not going to go on her Instagram. You know, those are no matter what, these are deal breakers. This, this would break my sobriety if I did this. Dangerous behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you in your work with people, what's your experience of who would be benefit from a harm reduction program who, where that would be enough versus somebody who mm-hmm. needs uh, like a full um, recovery program? Like what, what's yeah, your... that's a great question. Well, right now I, I'm seeing someone, I'll change it up a little. So it's still, you know, anonymous, but I'm seeing someone who does not want to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, he just wants to start after three. Mm-hmm. But he has <laughs> no, right? And during well, the pandemic, he started drinking at like 10, 11. Mm-hmm. No, his, his goal is to just start drinking after three. And um, moderately after three, or would <laughs> he would? That's what we're still tweaking. Okay. But that, He'd but like that to have three, but sometimes he has four or five. You know, and then so you're tracking, you're journaling. That's somebody who's not a program person, a 12-step program. This is somebody who wants to do it on their own. Because when you're in a 12-step program, you have to surrender and admit that you can't control yourself, that you're powerless. And in smart recovery, you have the power. It's Mm -hmm. empowering. You, you, it's your call. You define it. And it's, it's not saying that you are powerless. It's saying you have agency. Right, right. And some people need to hear that you have agency. I guess it's an experiment. So you try it. And if it doesn't work, you, you do the, because you're, you know, you were also talking before about the brain chemistry and um, sometimes the brain chemistry might be so uh, impaired that, or addicted that somebody might not be able to have their own agency, but I guess it's an experiment, right? It's all an experiment. Even going to one meeting is an experiment because the lost child might go to a meeting that you suggest and there's 90 people in the meeting. So, you know, the lost child, maybe, maybe they need, you know, a meeting that's smaller so that we can have a reparative experience and, and he or she can be seen. Um, because there are big meetings, small meetings, women's meeting, men's meeting. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize. Um, there. Yeah, there's so many. So I would say just keep trying. And now that there's Zoom, I mean, meetings are on fire. All of them. You you come from a rural area and you're you you're doing AA meetings in London, thanks to Zoom. There's so many new forged relationships. It's. So what do you think about, um, so like in terms of the impact on the family, I guess it has to be something that um, if somebody that, that is a shared decision to a certain extent, or maybe sometimes an ultimatum if the shared decision doesn't work to um, work with somebody to not take care of that behavior, to deal with that behavior, to deal yeah. with that. Uh, you don't want to do ultimatums, though. It depends what stage the person is. There's five stages of addiction recovery. Right. And this is declemente. This is in the 80s. They were just noticing that there's patterns of recovering. I've been using this for years, um, stages of change. It's very like motivational interviewing. And if you're going to give someone an ultimatum and they're in the the early stage of change. They're in pre-contemplation. Can I go through the stages? Is there sure, sure. That would be helpful. Go ahead. Sure. Okay. So there's pre-contemplation. This is, you know, my behavior is not a problem. It's the pandemic or I'm in finance or it's manageable. There's really few consequences. This person can still deny and definitely don't give this person an ultimatum or advice. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, people go for interventions in the pre-contemplation stage and it doesn't go well. In the contemplation stage, that's a great time to come in and intervene. Um, They're thinking about passively, you know, keeping their ears open, you know, maybe for 
food, you know, no sugar, wheat and flour, maybe the sugar is mood altering. Let's let me read about it. Let me keep my eyes open. So they're thinking about it. How can I cut down on sugar or use it moderately or drink shift to something else? So that's contemplation. Preparation is I'm getting a therapist, I'm getting their number, I'm looking at detoxes, um, I'm getting rid of all my paraphernalia, I might have pipes in the house, I might have porn in the house, I might have to block the computer um, from having access to certain things. So you're getting ready to do all of that. You might announce to friends that you know, you're not gonna drink. And then there's action. Action is just a change of behavior. They go to a meeting, they go to detox, they um, have a clean food day. Um, their top line behaviors and their bottom line behaviors are all, you know, intact. They're in maintenance. Maintenance is maintenance. I'd say a year or more is considered uh Early recovery is like, I think, like a year. And then you, you're in middle recovery. And then the last phase is relapse. That's really, they don't always add the sixth uh, change stage, but relapse is added in some places. And that, you know, it's hard to live without the addiction. Right. I didn't realize you said that people do three to four, at least three relapses are common. Right. Uh, is that what it said here? No. No. Um, Sometimes oh. no. There's no relapse. Sometimes there's a lot of relapse, and there's there only if there's so much. Oh, okay. Relapse, Maybe I misread that, but sure. There's medications because um, relapsing is traumatizing yeah. over and over and over again. Go to an addiction psychiatrist. There's meds that help with the cravings and block you from getting high and. You don't have to do it yeah. on your own. It's also amazing how much is biological and, and genetic. And I guess we have to just, again, if we're in a couple, we have to appreciate what somebody is dealing with. Because I, I kind of, I, I have to personally, like when I was a teenager and people tried to get me to drink alcohol, literally, Robin, I would like choke. I would feel like, why would anybody drink this? It's poison. It's like acid going down my throat. I couldn't drink it. I could not drink it. So I almost never drink because it feels like acid. But on the other hand, chocolate, mm -hmm. <laughs> it, you can't, I can't have chocolate in the house. So I'm very good at not eating chocolate as long as it's not in my house. Um, if it's in the house and it's calls to me, uh, you know, I'm like, I could easily, I need to eat it. Um, yeah. it, it beckons. So whatever that is, and who knows what that is, the genetic or it's something that, you know, and especially the, the alcohol feeling like acid. I always think of that. I think I'm not a good person. I just have like some weird trait that makes the alcohol feel like acid. Mm -hmm. And I literally feel that it's putrid and I can't drink it. <laughs> Ooh, well, lucky for you. Lucky for me, but it's not about anything I deserve to be, have credit for. So it's a funny thing. And yeah. I swear, I swear that's true. And sometimes I can have a glass of wine, but only if I pour tons of cream to cassis into it to make it sweet so that the acid feeling goes away. And I, it's, I barely want to. You know what, Arlene, though? But like you're saying, you have to stay from chocolate. Like that would be a drug of choice, maybe. Right, this right, is no right. joke. I've had, I have compulsive overeaters and bulimics. They go to Overeaters Anonymous. I mean, they, this is... I have one patient, she couldn't have a child for years because she needed to lose weight to first get pregnant. Um, the people, they, they can't be active with their children because they, they just, they can't keep to a food plan. And it's very painful and it's right. very painful. And but I think, it, you know, it does help to just to have some understanding and forgiveness for, for oneself and know that whatever those genetic traits are that if, or that are passed down through families who knows but um it, it's you have to know what they are you have to know what your vulnerability is and not blame yourself for it but 
as much as you can um, reduce the the lure of that substance, whatever, whether it's chocolate or alcohol or um, on you, on you, because it's not you're not, you're not operating from the same ground as somebody else who who doesn't have that, right? Right. Yeah. right. Well, you you said you have to, you know, there's hopefully even when you're hijacked, there's still a part of you. There's still a self that holds all the parts. You might have been disconnected from a lot of you, but there's still hopefully a you in there and you're holding on. And that's who we speak to. And that's who we build and program and all the support groups. They go from top down. It's all concrete actions and attitudes. We go from bottom up, but we, we, so in a child's work, you know, self-compassion, that's all bottom up stuff. Right. And the somatic experiencing, I mean, people are not in touch with their bodies. They have to learn to embody their body. So that's that's the difference between psychotherapy and just being a substance abuse specialist or a counselor. Or, and so I've enjoyed doing both. I, Wait, I have to, what, they're very different. Tell, say the difference again. The, oh, they're just very different. Like I have somebody now who is really killing himself with, uh, with, with, he's not doing well. Um, and he's got his team in order. I'm not part of the substance abuse treatment. I helped him get to it. What I do is hold his hand and I'm with him and hear how he's got a major dilemma because what helps him also hurts him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what hurts him also helps him so i'm with him in this dilemma in this bind substance abuse counsel there'll be a little more motivational and slogans and i hear you more action oriented yeah yeah yeah. which which serves its purpose as well But as a therapist, I hear you. I hear you. This is a major bind. And a lot of my analyst friends, I mean, I'm trained analytically too, but, you know, they come to me and I don't know addiction and maybe I should refer them to, you know what? How about just start with, you don't have to be a specialist. Just four four more minutes. (laughs) Okay. I'll just stop you. I'll just say just honor the struggle. You don't have to be a substance. Just honor their struggle and that's a good message for somebody who's in a relationship right with person who's dealing with addiction they have to be both the therapist i guess and the counselor they have to honor the struggle they have to appreciate how difficult it is they have to have empathy for where the desperation or the need came from to uh, with biological propensity and and all that stuff and then they also maybe have to make some uh suggestions or requests like you say not ultimatums but strong requests um, suggestions about how to take steps so that the couple and isn't destroyed for the family right and uh, the children that might be in that family so chapter nine is a great resource for couples yeah, I never heard of that until you you said it, and it sounds wonderful. You know, when I Googled, you know, how many 12-step programs are, it came out 45. I went through all of them, and Chapter 9 wasn't even on there. Wow. How are people supposed to know about these programs? Because programs aren't advertised, 12-step programs. So yeah. I want, want to share what I know. Yeah. So people refer, you know, people for extra support. It really takes a village. No, and it, I read the, the description on, online said that in chapter nine, you meet on the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love, and the partners work together. And what could be better than that, right? To have, to both be the support and have the support um, and and deal with what is a, you know, major, like debilitating, crippling problem. Exactly. That, that, yeah. Again, that's hijacked the person. 
Exactly. And I think sometimes the codependent going back to the roles needs to be an eye, a little build their eye back a little bit. And the addict needs to learn how to be a we, you know, fit a lot of eye. So it's a good we practice after there's some sobriety first in place. Yeah, no, I, and I, the way I like it, because it's also different from um, Alcoholics Anonymous, which was where people go separately, right, who are, who are partners of somebody. That's right. And, and, and then, you know, alcohol, and not, wait, wait, not my, but you know what I mean. And um, the two separate uh, support groups, and this is like a place where let's come together, and let's be, be together in this, which sounds wonderful to me. Yes, let's do the steps together. Let's get a, a couple sponsor. Mm-hmm. Wow, it, it just sounds wonderful. So I'm so glad that I learned about it from you. So oh, thank you. That's great. Yeah. And that is that would that be for all the addictions? In other words, yes. the chapter now, all the 42 that you yeah. <laughs> 45. The only requirement 45. for membership in that one is that um one of the partners be in a 12-step program okay. of okay. any kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to recommend that to people from now on. You know, um, I see mm-hmm. patients every other week. They do chapter nine one week. They come see me one week. They do, cha- you know, they also, plus it's expensive. So this is free. All 12-step programs are free. Smart right, recovery right. is free. They pay us okay. a hat around. That's it. So listen, we're going to have to end soon. So I just want to thank you so much for sharing your your knowledge and your your skill with everyone. I whoever listens to this, I hope you know we all learned something. I learned a lot, so I thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having okay. me. Okay, and it, you know, great. It's great to do this work, right? Thank you for tuning in to Ask Arlo. Arlene Majorano has another episode of the podcast coming soon. So keep checking back on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And be sure to visit askarlo.com to ask questions and to find out more about the show. Until our next show, keep finding new ways to renew the relationships in your life.